Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Dr. Albrecht Wiedemann from the Public Health Office. Your test on COVID has been positive. I have to ask you about your contacts because you may have already transmitted this pathogen, this virus to other people. We all could receive this call. This is contact tracing, using people to break the chain of transmission of the coronavirus. Now, this could be done by an app and done better. So why isn't it? Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. On this week's show, we explore why digital contact tracing has not been a potent weapon in fighting the spread of the coronavirus. How is it that a technology with such promise has not delivered, leaving the public more vulnerable and health authorities partly blind to the situation on the ground? It's a controversial issue and raises thorny questions. What is the role of the state versus tech companies? And can personal privacy still be protected? When a pandemic strikes, a way to slow its spread is to find out who has it by testing, then learn who may have been exposed to it and to isolate them, a process called contact tracing. Because we have no vaccine or really effective antivirals, we are, if you like, reduced to these quite almost medieval methods of um, infection control. Michael Baker is a doctor and a professor at the University of Otago in Wellington. He was instrumental in leading New Zealand's successful response to the pandemic. You can use a bushfire metaphor, if you like, that basically just poured water on the whole thing so it couldn't be transmitted and then use contact tracing to deal with the hot embers that were left, and of course, shut the borders, which is like a fire break, to stop more fire coming in. How does traditional contact tracing work? If you've got an outbreak, and it may include both symptomatic and asymptomatic cases, and they can obviously infect other people, and with an infection like COVID-19, you'll see an exponential rise in cases if you don't take any steps to manage that. But if you've got cases in the community, in particular an outbreak, uh, despite those other measures, contact tracing becomes a key measure. So basically a case reports contacts they've had during the incubation period or when they've been symptomatic. And if those contacts can be located very quickly, they can be isolated so they don't infect other people. Albrecht Wiedemann, who called me at the start of the show, runs contact tracing in Esslingen in Germany. Some people remember very exactly the number of contacts they had. Um, Some others who have had a lot of contacts, uh, for example, contacts to persons they even don't know exactly, they can only tell a few names. The first order contacts normally are the contacts uh, within the family. 
because there is the highest risk that the disease has been transmitted within a family. The other contacts are, for example, the working place. And normally you, you know all these people and can identify them. It's more problematic if you have contacts, let's say, in a, in a bus or in a plane, then you can only tell, I have been seated there, I made this journey, but you cannot identify the people exactly. Germany's manual system has been credited as a reason for staunching the spread. Yet there are problems with the traditional approach in general. It requires that people recall who they were with, or even know their names. And it doesn't account for the length of time together, or the distance. These shortcomings, in theory, can be overcome with technology. The smartphone keeps a track of everyone's location, who they were near, and how near, and for how long. It can identify strangers who were exposed, and notify them, all automatically. And if you feed in COVID testing data, you can learn the statistical patterns that predict who may get infected in order to identify upcoming hotspots and to prevent the virus's spread. But governments are not doing this. So what is holding them back? We have this new thing that is, that is largely speculative, um, which is called exposure notification. And it does a lot of similar things, but also it's completely different. Harper Reed is a technologist and entrepreneur in Chicago who ran the technology behind President Obama's re-election campaign in 2012. He is now working on technology to respond to COVID-19. So in the beginning of the COVID-19 kind of crisis, they were both called contact tracing. And it was very confusing because you had these apps. These apps were great. They were really potentially helpful apps. No one had ever used them in this context before, this kind of idea. Um, but what it did is it, the idea was that your phone would do the, the, the contact tracing um, rather than having this infrastructure, these people, this a kind of expensive infrastructure. And it was this, this very simple idea of your phone would emit a signal and then it would just be sending these pings as you're walking around, getting on the train, just living your daily life. And then everyone else's phones would be listening to those pings and also sending their own pings. So your phone knew who it was around and all the other phones knew that it was around you. Um, and this was done in a very privacy-preserving way, so it wasn't actually giving out too much information. There's a few places around the world that have done a version of Track and Trace successfully. Hal Hodson is The Economist's Asia technology correspondent. Most of them are in East Asia, so that's Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea, but also Australia and New Zealand have had fairly successful programs, but none of them are identical. Some of them have components that worked really well, some of them have components that didn't work well at all. Those countries have been successful with manual contact tracing, but their digital apps have been spotty. It is worse elsewhere. In France, three weeks after its app launched in early June, fewer than 70 people had used it to record COVID, probably fewer than worked to actually build the app itself. However, Britain has proved particularly inept. Today, we formally launch NHS Test and Trace. 33,000 people are estimated to have COVID-19 in England. The latest track, trace and isolate figures show that just over 10,000 people with COVID-19 were reached. Our app won't work because Apple won't change their system, but it can measure distance. And their app can't measure distance well enough to a standard that we are satisfied with. Around the world, countries are taking a variety of approaches, 
with varying degrees of success or non-success, as our network of correspondents explain, starting with Rosemary Ward in New York. The city hired 3,000 tracers, but according to the New York Times, in the first two weeks of June, only 35% of positive New Yorkers gave information about close contacts to the disease detectives. And there's another worry. The tracers are not asking anyone if they have attended a protest. I'm Sarah Maslin, Brazil correspondent. Contact tracing is as foreign a concept in Brazil as lockdown was three months ago. Brazil has more than a million confirmed cases and 50,000 deaths, second only to the U.S. Much of South America is still struggling with testing in overwhelmed hospitals, so contact tracing isn't a top priority. This is Max Rodenbeck. I'm the South Asia Bureau Chief for The Economist, based in Delhi. India's government did create an app, and it was downloaded more than 100 million times, more than any other contact tracing app anywhere in the world. The trouble was that a lot of Indians were never clear about what the app was supposed to do, and there's a kind of general lack of trust in the government. So this app never really quite performed the miracles that it was supposed to. This is Charlie McCann, The Economist Southeast Asia correspondent. Most Southeast Asian countries have rolled out contact tracing applications. The first to do so was Singapore. The government rolled out the app pretty quickly. It came out in March, but not enough people have downloaded it for it to be effective. From mid-May, anyone entering a shop, restaurant, hotel, even taxis had to check in and check out by scanning a QR code and registering their ID number and contact details. This is David Rennie, Beijing bureau chief. We Beijing residents cannot hide. Every time we want to catch a train or aeroplane or enter a public building, we must show a smartphone app the reports are movements for the past 14 days. Few countries are willing to go to China's authoritarian extremes, even amid a pandemic. But responding to COVID-19 raises big issues without easy answers. For example, who should control how the apps work? Sovereign countries or Silicon Valley companies? Should governments have the data? And if so, how much, for how long, and for other uses than public health? Should the apps be mandatory so the whole population is protected, or voluntary, and thus less effective? To answer these questions, it is important to understand how the technology works. GPS was kind of the first approach that was proposed. It, it has a lot of fancy software inside your phone that already tries to do this in a relatively accurate way. That's Andrew Trask. He leads OpenMind, an open source project that builds privacy-preserving technology for AI. Andrew works with public health groups and app designers to explore the options when building contact tracing apps. But I think it's generally been acknowledged by the global community that Bluetooth is a better approach for contact tracing. First off, it works in things like subways and undergrounds, right? Because, you know, places where you don't have access to GPS information. And second, it doesn't create, you know, this centralized repository of a lot of individuals direct GPS location, which could either be misused by the ones who are managing it or potentially, you know, misused if there was a security incident and that location information was somehow disclosed accidentally. But there are benefits of using geolocation for contact tracing. It allows health authorities to spot potentially upcoming outbreaks at national scale. The Bluetooth-based contact tracing does not and is not intended to provide medical authorities with information about where the disease is and like how it's spreading and, and, and these kinds of things. There is one app that has over 120 million users that, that does do uh, GPS hotspot detection uh, using this paradigm, and they're able to predict hotspots 10 to 11 days in advance. Like It's an incredibly practical and, and useful scenario. So I think it's it's important to understand that like 
GPS has two potential uses, one of which has been discredited uh, to, to some extent by the global community, which is contact tracing, but the other of understanding the high level progression of the disease, like you know what counties and cities and regions are likely to have uh, flare ups for the disease 10 to 11 days in advance is something that GPS location is still being used for and we're, we're searching for a better algorithm. In this model, people's location data gets stored in a centralized database. That way, it can be accessed by public health bodies. But the fear is that it could be plundered by others too, like the police, immigration authorities, or political rivals, or fundamentalist clerics in religious states. A second approach is a decentralized one using Bluetooth technology. It can anonymize the data and it keeps the data on the user's phone, as Hal Hodson explains. Decentralized systems collect the data on individuals' phones and it stays there the whole time until such a point as the public health officials ask people to share it with them. With the decentralized version, there is processing of data that is done on individuals' phones in order to match them with people they may have come across. Whereas in the centralized system, all of that processing and all of the data collection happens on a server controlled by the government. In early April, Apple and Google, which makes the software that powers most of the world's smartphones, announced an unprecedented collaboration. Shares of Apple and Alphabet have of course suffered greatly in the last six weeks, but their shares rose slightly on the news Friday that the companies are joining together to help fight the spread of COVID-19. This was stunning on several levels. They were providing the underlying tech for developers to build exposure notification apps. Andrew Trask again. The Apple-Google approach intuitively is, is quite simple. Each phone, as you walk around throughout the day, broadcasts an encrypted anonymous email address that only you have. It's not exactly through email, but you could think of it like email. And if anyone else in the future becomes sick who has heard your broadcasting of an email address, they will send you a message saying, hey, I got sick so that you can know that you were exposed to someone who got sick. And the important thing to know about this is that these inbox addresses that you're advertising can't be traced to you and your identity and vice versa. You can't necessarily see the identity of someone who is sending you a message. You just know that someone who is in proximity to you over the last few days has sent you a message that they got sick and that you should self-isolate. But this effectively mandated decentralized systems. And the companies refused to allow apps that centralize data collection to be distributed through their app store, even if it was from a sovereign country trying to protect its people. The tech giants were using a technical design to push an ideological agenda. It prioritized the value of individual privacy over public health. The drawback is that health officials know less, but the identities of people all throughout the system are shielded. The reason that this preserves privacy is because it decouples the notion of you being informed that you have gotten sick from anyone else knowing anyone's location. So no location is actually captured in this. And anyone else knowing your identity or the identity of someone who is sending and receiving messages from you. This is a win for privacy, but not for governments. They perceive that they need the data to respond effectively to the pandemic. After all, lives are at stake. Who are these latte-drinking, peloton-riding California coders who think they know better than accountable governments in Western democracies? Hal? 
the reason that it caused a fuss is that essentially this was dictating the terms of technological development to nation states. In particular, Europeans got quite upset about this, the French and the Germans. And the basic reason it upset governments is because they're being told how to build infrastructure by a private company with no democratic accountability. It happens in this case that the private company is correct, that you know th this is probably the best way to do it, and that there are definitely concerns about governments having centralized databases of very, very detailed contact data about who's been where and talked to who. And, you know, it's, it's good that Apple and Google have laid down this line in the sand. But what it highlights is the degree to which the big tech companies have control over the technical infrastructure that's increasingly important in our lives. Getting the trade-off right is vital. The data are essential to fighting the pandemic. But surely a wise society could design laws that protect the data's good use and prevent their misuse. Do we have so little trust in our public institutions? Coming up, what are the privacy issues for digital contact tracing? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Babbage with Kenneth Couquier from Economist Radio. Contact tracing is controversial. It seems like a trade-off between privacy and health. But is it really? There are a lot of privacy issues if you do it wrong, and there don't have to be many at all if you do it right. Fred Kate is a law professor specializing in privacy at Indiana University. So in other words, you're collecting very sensitive information. You're going to know where people are, and most of us consider that extremely sensitive. You may know um, who I'm interacting with if you're doing contact tracing and you're, and you're connecting who am I meeting with. And of course, you may know my health status because the reason we do most contact tracing is because you've got a communicable disease, in this case, most likely COVID-19. Uh, on the other hand, as long as the information's only being used for the limited purposes related to protecting public health, as long as it's not being reused for something else, most of our laws, both in the UK and the US and around most of the world, permit that expressly. And so it doesn't have to be a big deal, provided that you do it right. What exactly do privacy advocates fear? We often talk about, you know, the Nazis during World War II, or we talk about the Stasi in Eastern Europe in the post-war period. But you can look far more recently when in the U.S. and elsewhere, we've targeted people based on their national identity. What country are they from? Or, uh, you know, were they connected to someone who was suspected of being a terrorist? Post 9-11, we saw massive roundups. And so there's, there's fear that the more data you have about people, the more likely they might get caught up in something in which they have actually done nothing. They've done nothing to warrant suspicion. They've done nothing to warrant police uh, attention. It's simply that in this case, you would have their location information. That really does raise the question, we're not looking at this data for law enforcement purposes. And that's why the government needs to clarify that. This is not about a convenient way to track lawbreakers. This is not about a convenient way to track people who are missing their court dates. This is about a, a way to try to protect the health of the entire society and all of its members. But in some respects, the debate is short-sighted. 
We are in the midst of a deadly pandemic, and technology can save lives. Surely we can have it both ways, collect all the data and ensure its proper use? You're asking exactly the right question about what is the just thing to do and what decisions do we want to make as a society. Sui Leng Harris works on data rights at Luminate, a foundation that fosters digital civic engagement, and she's a visiting fellow at King's College London. If technology can help us to assess that risk accurately, uh, then we want to be confident and trusting in that technology and have it uh, demonstrated and tested quite rigorously that it is in fact accurate. And what about too much data being collected? There's apps like South Korea's app, and that aggregates data, meaning it combines data from a number of different sources, including credit card data. And crucially, one of the sources of data it uses is location data. That's quite different to apps which uses Bluetooth technology. An important issue is whether the apps are voluntary or compulsory to use. Because many are voluntary, they've not had much take up. But rushed, sloppy coding and privacy worries haven't helped. With the potential for the data to be misused, it is crucial that the right policies are in place to give citizens confidence in the system. Really, we need robust, specific laws that have teeth. Meg Falks is a lawyer and the director of the Justice Program at the Open Knowledge Foundation, which champions open information in society. They would say, for instance, that... The principles that we already have in the GDPR, for instance, the principles of data minimization, which is really, really key to this, which is only taking as much data as you need. That's really, really core, but it's not specific to contact tracing apps. The GDPR gives broad stroke protections But it's struggling. Legislators are struggling to keep up with the pace of technology. We don't even have specific legislation for AI and algorithms yet. And we don't certainly don't have laws that govern COVID tracing apps. And what we need is legislation that enshrines the general principles that are important to fair governance, such as equity and just outcomes. We really need a careful, comprehensive piece of legislation that defines that in a COVID context. It is a serious problem that around the world, people have less and less trust in their political leaders just when we need to rely on government the most. If we screw up trust here, it screws up public health and it screws up people's lives and people will die. We have to be very careful with this. Harper Reed co-wrote a set of digital contact tracing data rights and he has helped to get apps to adopt privacy-protecting protocols. What we suggest when we kind of went through and wrote our privacy principles was that all of the data should reside only on the, the, the consumer's device. So when you install the app, all the data should just be on that device. They shouldn't share it with anyone, nobody. It should be encrypted. Um, and then, because this is why trust is such an important part of this, because then you use trust to get the data. And what I mean by that is, Let's say that I get a notification on my phone that says, Harper, you've been exposed to COVID-19. Right now, in this time, 2020, that's a scary notification. If you partner that notification with something that says, you should call this number, or you should send an email, or you should go get a test, like with clear instructions that help me as a regular person, a consumer, have a public health intervention. A potential benefit of the technology is that where human contact tracers may violate privacy by having access to sensitive information, computer systems may be safer. Why does this all matter? 
The 20th century is blood-soaked with data being used for tragic ends. When the Nazis invaded countries like the Netherlands, they stormed town halls and took census records to round up Jews. In fact, the countries that had more complete demographic data had the worst atrocities. A generation of public officials learned from that and designed digital privacy laws to safeguard against it. Today's contact tracing apps don't place a dent in that edifice. It blows the whole wall away. Much of the worry is at the population scale, but what about subgroups of society? What is the effect on them in particular? Sweeling Harris. Technology and apps might result in stigmatization or marginalization of people who are high risk in relation to the virus. Um, but there are also data issues on the flip side. So, for example, it's important to collect demographics data and ethnicity data in order to monitor whether there's discrimination happening. So by collecting data on um, race and gender, it's possible to monitor whether something, be it um, a pandemic or a new technology, is having a disproportionate and unfair impact on marginalised communities. As protests flare around the world over aggressive policing and racial discrimination, the misuse of contact tracing technology by the state is a real concern. One of the concerns, um, and researchers for Data for Black Lives has pointed out, that it could potentially harm um, activists, it could potentially operate heart in hand with surveillance mechanisms and contribute to already existing racist policies within the government. I spoke to Edna Bonhomm, a historian of science at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin, who also hosts the podcast Decolonization in Action that explores race issues. That could also assist the U.S. immigration authorities in finding and removing undocumented immigrants. So this intersection of what the data can be used for, which could potentially endanger racialized subjects, uh, women or people who are experiencing domestic violence, uh, Black people who have been activists, particularly if we think about the current wave of protests in the United States and what role that could play, that could intrude on people's privacy. And it could also serve as a gateway for police officials to uh, disproportionately target individuals with the tracking app. It is a huge problem for all governments. Can they get public buy-in to collect the data for health, but then constrain themselves from using it for other purposes, since without those constraints, the public won't agree to share the data in the first place? Meg Falks of the Open Knowledge Foundation again. When data is shared between immigration officials and the health service, that's been documented during the COVID crisis, that migrants have actually been reluctant to obtain health care for risk of their immigration status being flagged and them facing the consequences of that. So without transparency, it's impossible to know. And the UK government have made it very clear that transparency is not high up on their agenda. It actually took legal action for the data impact assessment for the centralised app to be published. A spooky way these systems can be good and potentially bad exploded into view in March when Israel said it will use its counterterrorism technology for domestic surveillance of COVID infections. It's going to help us a lot in order to detect the location of the virus and the... It is a tempting power to possess, even for the noblest of reasons. Amid the violent protests over the police killing of George Floyd in May, the Minnesota Public Safety Commissioner invoked contact tracing as a tool the police would use. 
we have begun analyzing the data of who we have arrested and begun actually doing what you would think is almost very similar to our COVID. It's, it's contact tracing. Now, who are they associated with? The police immediately clarified that they were referring to normal investigation methods. But in fact, they'd have to use those. Digital contact tracing systems don't really exist yet in any significant way. So what are the solutions? Can laws be designed in a way to ensure that the data is not mishandled? Fred Kate at Indiana University. So I think a really good system would have to start with a legal guarantee that the data won't be reused for any other purpose. But on top of that, I think we'd like to see other than just legal protection. So we'd like to see, for example, the data wouldn't be kept longer than a certain uh, number of days. You would like to see explicit guarantees of oversight for how it's used. So you'd like to know there's an inspector general, that there's somebody who could look at the process and make sure it's not been misused along the way. You would like some level of accountability to the public or transparency. How many people has it actually detected? How helpful has it been? Has it worked? Getting the legal infrastructure right is vital to ensure apps are widely deployed. And it is especially important as we reopen our economies and loosen social distancing rules. For contact tracing to work, we really need to be tracking, you know, 85 or 90 percent or more of the entire population. So that that way, when um, there is an outbreak, you can track it down to who's been exposed to it. From an economics point of view, it makes so much more sense rather than shutting down the entire economy. You know, if the rate in the U.S., for example, is about 2%, you really only need to be shutting down about maybe 2% of the economy and then some umbrella of people who deal with those 2% and let the other 90 or 95% of the economy keep operating. Perhaps society does not need to choose between contact tracing and privacy, but can have both. Andrew Trask at Open Mind believes that digital technology does a better job of protecting privacy than manual tracing. So the reason that contact tracing through digital devices has the potential to be more privacy preserving than manual cases is that in manual cases, somebody, some person has to both have and then enter all of the information, you know, every single person's health status, right? Whereas with technology, you know, your, your, your phone, for example, can perform what's called secure aggregation. And secure aggregation is this notion where this technology can make it possible for everyone to keep their inputs secret while still as a community being able to reveal important statistical aggregations, important averages, important hotspots, important high level statistics about what's going on in our community. We can have both our cake and eat it too. I think that's the promise that that digital-based contact tracing and digital-based public health infrastructure offers. One of the countries that has handled COVID best is New Zealand. It adopted a strategy of elimination when most other countries were thinking of mitigation. Now New Zealand is leading the way again with a digital tracking system that protects privacy by dispensing with the smartphone altogether. There's a lot of work going into a smart card, a COVID card. This would be a card that could be issued to every resident in the entire country, and it would maintain a record of all the people they have contact with over a period of, of a few days, and it would gradually overwrite itself. So if any of those people became cases, it would automatically notify all their contacts and met certain parameters and tell them to self-isolate. And it could also do a second order process as well. For this to work and make much of a difference, you need something that everyone's carrying around. And so whether it's a card or another Bluetooth-enabled device, I think that's 
where I believe Singapore is going. It's certainly where um, the tech sector in New Zealand is going. There's one particular very savvy developer in New Zealand who's really championed this, I think, in the public interest. And some of my colleagues are testing that out, and they think it performs very well. COVID tracking systems matter because the rules, norms, and public expectations that are established in the crisis will affect how other digital technologies get rolled out in the future. From fitness bracelets to doorbells to all the Internet of Things that collect and share our personal information when we're not aware of it. I asked Sweetling Harris if we are failing a test. I certainly think that issues around privacy and data governance have achieved headline status and a salience during the time of this pandemic that we haven't seen previously. And that does give me hope. I don't think we're failing a test. I think that we're still in the middle of it. And we have the opportunity now to think carefully about how we protect the rights and freedoms uh, and the democratic principles that we hold dear through enforcing current laws and, if needed, passing new laws as we deploy and use new technology to solve problems our society faces. This sets the groundwork for how the algorithmic society evolves. But technology is not destiny. It is in our power to control it. If we don't, human dignity and freedom will suffer. So we better get it right. Thanks for listening to Babbage. And our thanks to all our guests, Albert Vendeman, Michael Baker, Andrew Trask, Harper Reed, Fred Kate, Meg Falks, Sweeling Harris, Edna Bonhomme, and from The Economist, Hal Hodson and our foreign correspondents. And for all our coverage of coronavirus and track and trace apps and more, subscribe to The Economist. For the best introductory offer wherever you are, visit economist.com slash podcast offer. And so that others can track and trace the Babbage podcast, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, with my every move not tracked, not traced, and wishing they were under the authority of meaningful privacy laws to support public health, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.